If there's one thing that we appreciate, it is a villain who will give a gangbusters after having killed you speech here on V'ger Please, a heinous trip at Warp 5. My name is Joseph. I'm your co-host, Peter. Peter, what episode of Star Trek did we watch this week? Season 3, episode 22, The Council, first aired May 12th, 2004, written by Manny Cotto, the late Manny Cotto, directed by the oldest hand, David Livingston, in Universe State, February 12th, 2154. It is unfathomable to me. Yeah. That this is the same show that we had started watching. And I see now why you had been so adamant about going into Enterprise and the high praise that you sung. And I I keep thinking about, like, why is this working to the degree it is? Because I still don't feel like for the wide majority of the cast that I really give a shit about any of these crew members. Like, Trip's... I'm warm to trip and, mm-hmm. you know, to Paul's interesting enough. Archer still. He's not a petulant bitch anymore, but it's not like, oh, God, I really love this guy. And then there's everyone else. So, like, it's just pure, great plot. Uh, and this thing is just. Tearing it up, man. To, it's, to, it's, it's riveting. It's, yeah, it's unbelievable what a difference one man can make, right? You see this name, Manny Cotto, show up, and suddenly you've got well-acted drama, music, the tension, the sound design, the, the FX, the whole thing cooks, and it cooks so well. I'm trying to twist my wife's arm behind her back into watching these things with me, and... You know, it's it's summertime. Kids are well, it's end of summertime. It's uh, what, August 19th while we're recording this. Kids are going back to school. Shit's busy. Like she's not even into watching uh, Strange New World. So I've been going through those alone because she's so zapped and tired at the end. But I'm watching it, man. And it's like it's not 90s. It's early 2000s. But that that big money Game of Thrones production value Nowhere near this thing. The sets still look kind of cheesy. Like, you know, somebody made this less than a week ago and this is going to be torn down after. Right. Like they're 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 not bad, but they're not mind effective. They're cost effective, cost effective. That's the right way to do it. The special effects most of the time suck. But man, this thing's just firing on all cylinders. And it's so weird to just see old TV like this. That's just enthralling. And I, it's killing me not binging this thing. We've touched on the concept before, but the more we continue to revisit this, the more I'm convinced it's just the constraints make them have to to, to use low tech options to entertain you. And what is more low tech yet entertaining than actors who understand their role and manage to pull off scenes of dialogue very well together. There's a ton of that here. A lot of it, of course, this episode is about your boy Degra. This is, this is Degra's big moment, right? Like this, he, he's actually the main character 
of this episode, which is a real true rarity of, of Enterprise that you can really say that, that there's a non-cast member who's really the focus. And he, someone we we only get to know for a short time and, you know, not so much spoiler alert, we don't see him after this. He's the one carrying the load and they just figured out like that was that was the right call here. We've got an actor in this guest role who's strong enough that he can just compete with everyone on this cast and he can deliver the the dramatic potential and we're comfortable with this being his vehicle. This isn't Kirkwood Smith. No, just some fucking guy. Who, have we really Who talked is this about this guy? Like, I don't think we've talked about this guy. Let's look him up. Over here blowing him three episodes. Randy Oldsby. Randy Oldsby is his name. This dude is uh, it was more recent picture of him. He is in uh, 74 now. So he's in that uh, prior generation. He's a boomer. He's a true boomer. Um, he did. He was in Counterpoint on Voyager. Which one was that? Okay. Counterpoint is. Uh... Oh, it's the, the space telepaths. Like uh, the, they hated the hate telepaths. The, yeah. The, the That's uh the one you hated and I really liked where Janeway fell in love with the, the anti-telepath Nazi. Correct. And he was one of the refugees apparently. So it seems like he was barely in it. Uh, he, he was, was one of uh fucking Riva, that ginger telepath, one of his entourage, like clearly that guy, or maybe he did speak. Cause I think he spoke through his, uh, I don't know they got shot with that real nasty scene with the disruptors and their skin gets burned off before they like explode. And he was Solar Print in a really good episode of DS9 that I won't talk about any further, but he's never had an opportunity to explore a role at length. He was in 10 episodes of Enterprise ultimately. And I know his career seems to be very like middle of the road. A uh, working L.A. Hollywood guy, from the looks of it, from from the from the nineties through the two thousands, but he fucking absolutely does a tremendous job in this show. I buy his journey. He is a protagonist. He he charms the audience and the cast. You know, like he does it all, man. I want to go back to budget constraints birthing good Trek, and then take what we've been watching here which is a show that has terrible viewership, right? And is really mm-hmm. pulling Hail Marys out left and right out of its ass. This is a show that we know is out of gas and doomed, if not because of its own awful numbers, but because the entire fucking network is collapsing that it's on, right? Correct. It's going to go down in the pile of garbage that the UPN is. And then you flip over to New Trek, Discovery, Strange New Worlds, uh, Picard's right, and they've got gobs of money, the best special effects, huge, crazy set pieces, and despite having the deck stacked so heavily in their favor, nine and a half times out of ten, they can't stick the fucking episodes. Right? They even got great casts too. They have like loaded with good actual actors. You know, like. You're, the the cast of Strange New Worlds seems every almost everyone has more talent than your best actor on Enterprise. You know, Anson Mount, like Anson Mount, can act circles around anyone, like nearly anyone else that's ever put on a trekking uniform, save Patrick Stewart. 
you know, they shouldn't be struggling with any material they have. But yet, you're right, they do. They can't get there. They spend five times more money on that stupid goddamn musical episode of Strange New Worlds than they did the entirety of Picard Season 3. Five times. Take, again, Enterprise and put it right up against every other episode of Strange New World or Discovery. Uh, The over-reliance on these emotional outbursts, crying, emotion, emotion, emotion. And here, you know, especially where we're at right now, like they're under some serious pressure uh, to Paul's having her fucking crack withdrawal. Um, trying to save Earth from trying to save Earth. Yes. My yeah. sister and everybody I knew was evaporated by a Death Star attack. Like, and you still don't have people breaking down in this crazy, uh, ugly, crying sob fest. And on, 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 there's some danger here about what I'm about to say. Maybe it doesn't make the show. Maybe it does. But I think the answer is this was a show primarily written and produced by men. And the 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 feminine voice, as much as I think it has a place within Trek and can be valuable to the overall strata of making sure Trek feels like a fully realized and lived in universe where the male and female voice is present and affects the story and engages audiences of all kinds. This is supposed to be a paramilitary ship on a dangerous, you know, military-esque mission with risk and, and the kind of masculine storytelling that is required to convey. And that's why no one's breaking down in emotions. And that's why, you know, when you do, it's very earned over the course of an episode and you you kind of like work your way there and it's done in a quiet way where you kind of resolve how you feel because that's matches with that sort of gendered approach. Whereas for uh, the female voice has got the emotion way out on their sleeve and is, is it's more the narrative focus. And well, that's why that, I think man. Str- you go back Strange to the world has like two relationships. It's trying to like make into storylines and all that. Like, yo, that's just not that's go back into Voyager, go back into Voyager, Lisa Klink. Uh, yeah, Jerry Taylor, right? The first couple seasons, very heavy on the, the the feminine voice. And even then you didn't have like big emotional outbursts, crying, all that other stuff. Like, and maybe it's just because writers as a whole didn't know that was a, a tool in the box that they could put on screen. I, I don't know if there was anything else in the late 90s, early 2000s that could even come close to rivaling the amount of crying that Michael Burnham does. Insane. Uh, Absolutely insane. But I mean, it's it's histrionics and it's. It is not a feature, it is a a, a God, I can't. Maybe there's a part of the crowd out there that enjoys those shows and they're like, oh, cool. You know, I feel like okay. this is somehow emotionally uh, an, an earned place that they're in or whatever, but. It's a very stark difference in writing style. And whatever they're doing with this stuff here, man, like I'd love to be able to make people watch us with a gun to their head and just get them through season three by the end of it and say, all right, 10 point scale where you put in this piece of uh, fucking 2004 um, <laughs> television. Writing. Yeah. And I, I think Trek always was more. I think this this is part of the answer of where you went with like, hey, there was always the feminine voice was always present from the very beginning. DC Fontana was a writer on TOS, right? Like 
women have always been around the same franchise. Yeah, it's always been Voyager stuff like that. That was front and center. It was. And what did we find out? Voyager has a strong female fan base. Always has. It's always appealed to them. Uh, Trek overall of all like the nerd sort of cauldrons have been the one that had more female, actual female fans in it than any other. It's true. And I think it has to do with its intellectual nature and that it's going to have more cross sex appeal because it's not purely leaning on the sort of masculine trait. It's, it's talking about problem solving through diplomacy and morality and things that can kind of elevate to a point where you get a lot of folks that enjoy it. And that's actually part of the reason why the franchise is so great. It does social commentary and all of that. But when you've decided you want to tell serious military stories, your male writers are probably be better at doing that because they're going to be able to tell the story of male emotion and male problem solving and, and uh, how to deal with horrific circumstances that involve murdering each other way better than a woman's going to be able to. There's no shade there. I don't think that's a bad thing, uh, but it's true. And this is a story where they've got that lined up and discovery was a perfect example season four was that where it wasn't lined up you had you had people whose core competency wasn't writing the kind of story they were trying to write and it showed and it was god awful and no one wanted to watch it i will contrast that by saying season one of discovery while they are in the middle of the klingon war and there are atrocities happening uh that was back when i did enjoy the show and i i think they portrayed that stuff well, it was horrific and it was jarring and it was uh, traumatic to yeah, watch. And, who, and I and think who the, wrote most of those early scripts, Brian Fuller. <laughs> you did know? he? Yeah, he got he got full credit on the first couple, I think, and then got a lot of uh, he he had story credit for a lot of those because a lot of them came from him. Hmm. Uh, this one though, the council, another great entry, right? And I'm catching up on our back catalog of uh, podcasts. I'd fallen behind a little bit. I just watched Hatchery, which is kind of where all this really starts jumping off. And it's crazy the amount of ground that the show has covered in just a few episodes. And to bring it to this point now where, uh, you know, we come in, Archer has basically fully persuaded Degra and Degra's cohorts and that they are going to present him to the council with the intention of him um, showcasing his findings and saying the, what are they? They call them the, they call them the guardians. The guardians. We know them as the sphere builders. The teaser is the spear sphere builders and a white void talking to each other about how enterprise is fucking up their chance of destroying earth. And when we cut back, we're right back with Enterprise being escorted, as you say, by Degra uh, to have a conversation with all the Zindi. And speaking um, of feminine voice real quick, this intro that we get over in the other dimension where the uh, the Guardians, as we I think we should start calling them now, uh, the Seer Builders, all appears to be female leadership. And I yep. would be. You know, I'd say, well, maybe it's, you know, single sex, but it, there was very clearly the. The guy in the blob episode. Was it wasn't the prisoner, it was a harbinger, right? Correct. That was a dude. Uh, so interesting that it appears to be a matriarchy. 
hard to know, right? Like you never get to know much about the sphere builders, just that they're, you know, generically the mysterious bad guys from another dimension. And they do not come in peace. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we, we actually do get great backstory during this episode as to why some of the things we saw happen happened, which I think really adds to it. We find out that the sphere builders are uh, uh, revered as gods by the Zindi, that they showed up a long time ago. They showed them like, here, hey, here's a a, a, a rich um, ore vein of iron. You take that shit to the auction house later if you want. Here's a planet that's habitable that you can put a colony on. And they've been helping them like get their civilization back together since their planet was destroyed. And like Degra like lays it out again. We praised him at the start. Every scene he's in is gold where he's like trying to explain to Archer. Like this is religious belief. My children, my children, I, the doubter, my kids would be think I'm crazy for, for questioning the guardians. That's, that's a, that's a maxim across all of our species. That's what we're going into. And we religiously were convinced we had to terminate your entire species. So that's why this is all really hard. And it makes makes the Zindi feel less villainous and more taken advantage of, which I think was smart. Because we're making smart. the turn. We're making the turn now, right? This is basically a three-part season finale. And the Zindi have been this sort of background malicious force. And Degra and the Arboreals, maybe the Aquatics, they start to like make them seem a little more reasonable. But now we know like actually the Zindi, they're just being taken advantage of. They were weak, they were isolated. And somebody helping them out led them to being a useful tool in another time where they could be coached into building a super weapon that destroys their villain in the, in the future, even though they're a bunch of fucking nobodies from the Terminus systems. I could have almost gone for them taking it a step further and Degra hypothesizing, you know, in light of all this information, for all we know, the sphere builders could have been uh, present in Zindi life even earlier. You know, they might have even poisoned the, uh, you know, been whispering in the insectoid's ears with the reptilians to blow the world up and and really force us into this uh, position where we become subservient to them. Like, you start dealing with time travel and nothing is off the table. So everybody knows that's going to be a very difficult task of convincing the reptilians and the insectoids, but they're very confident that Archer and his uh, evidence file is going to be able to play it out. Archer, however, wants to have some backup and he sets this side plot in motion where it's going to be read uh, to Paul and unfortunately for uh, Lieutenant Hawkins. Corporal Hawkins, but yes. Whatever. This is the fucking Volunteers. guy. <laughs> well, uh, kind of. Uh, he's got an idea. Hey, I want you guys to go back to a sphere and see if you can't hack into it and pull some data that might aid us in either A, fighting the sphere builders, or B, really giving us that last minute um, evidence submission to, to win the Zindi council over. I yeah. mean, he, he, he dodged death in impulse. 
ridiculously so. So, <laughs> so like the it almost felt like it was karma, like was final destination. <laughs> like he's like, Hawkins, you have to come with us. Why? Because someone's definitely going to die on this mission. We're going to bring no other Makos. We're only bringing you because death stalks you specifically. Corporal, not Major Hayes. Please come along. Um, here's why it's going to go bad for Hawkins is back in the Vulcan Resident Evil episode. This guy playing Hawkins is the worst actor that we will ever see until Michelle Hurd is christened in the Star Trek. The union and, president Michelle Hurd. <laughs> dude, and I that all makes so much more sense when you found that. Why out. would they keep this fucking person around from season to season? This miserable shit character portrayed by the worst actor Trek has ever seen. And when I saw that she was the union president for fuck, was it SAG then? She's a, one of the vice presidents, but yeah. I was like, that's why. That, that is why right there. His bad acting was able to deflect death. This one, it's clear he came in with like some acting lessons. Like, I don't know, Berman or something saw him. I was like, can he please have at least one acting lesson before we put him back in front of the fucking camera? <laughs> and this time he comes in completely unremarkable uh, in his portrayal, which is to say he's he's just fine. He is a military dude. He's not like the worst guy ever that you're like, dude, Hawkins, your no, your shield, it's down. <laughs> you can be killed now. Yeah. <laughs> the plot armor, the <laughs> peel right off. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, so yes, uh, this episode is actually great for all of the main cast members doing the thing that they're supposed to do, which is another rarity, you know, like there is to Paul has to do a science thing and lead the, the way team. You know, you've got Travis has to do fancy flying. Malcolm Reed has to act like he's seen a gun before and has shot it. <laughs> you know, Hawkins had the red shirt has to die, right? And die ha- bad. Archer has to be a diplomat. Hoshi has to translate. Trip has to fix all kinds of technological problems. Flax has to deal with medical issues. They do it all. Every single character gets to do their thing here in a way that really affects the ongoing plot for the as the finale goes on. But but they launch the backup mission and Sure enough, they're entering the the danger zone of the Zindi base. Uh, The asshole reptilian shows up and have a little game of chicken uh, before Enterprise is allowed to continue towards the base itself. While head reptile guy is in the tanning bed, subordinate comes in and says, hey, we lost contact with uh, one of our patrol vessels. We are able to locate it. And we found it within the cloaking field of one of the spheres. Shit seems real iffy. And this is going to basically place the sword of Damocles over Degra's head because it is only going to be a matter of time before the full extent of his uh, treacherous activities is going to come to light. And he is going to uh, answer for that. But prior to that, he starts coaching Archer on the intricacies of the council. Uh, you know, the arboreals are frustrating because they take forever to deliberate. And in fact, they were the holdout. They were the last uh, group to sign off before agreeing that Zindis were going to go to war with Earth. Uh, the opposite to that is the insectoids that make decisions almost impulsively, which fits the the 
the mold for a species that only lives 12 years. Yeah, the longer lived a species is, the more cautious contemplative, yeah. Yeah, that they become and are less likely to take rash action. So your insects that aren't lasting very long, they're like, "Let's go! I'm on crack cocaine." And then your arboreals are, you know, and your humans are like, mm, you know, let's kind of like feel this out. Let's see what's going on. And the aquatics are like taking a nap. <laughs> They're chilling. I also like the prep that Degger gives them on like, you can't show weakness uh, or the reptilians are going to jump all over you. But if you talk too loud and too firm, then the insectoids are going to be pissed off. And if you do this, then you're going to make uh the aquatics mad and it's a nice throwback to like the the perplexing diplomatic missions that we'd often see picard going in where he's like working with troy on like hitting the nuances of whatever the 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 diplomatic mission they were going to go off on you know what, what you said before like everybody has to do the thing that they're supposed to be there to do you haven't really seen a lot of diplomacy archery yet uh, but I think he goes into this thing. There's never a point where Bacula's performance or what you're seeing out of Archer pulls me out of the scene or even gives me like pause or question. And really, this is the first time I really feel good about like, OK, Jonathan Archer should be the president of the Federation. This this is making sense now. The reveal that eventually happens this season where it finally kind of gets spelled out to him what his destiny is. And it helps because in season four you really watch archer decide he's going to make that destiny happen that it's important and therefore he has to be the person he that apparently fate has deigned it necessary that he be and that actually turns his character into something extremely compelling and cool in the last season because you see like, okay, he, he, you know how he, we hated the twilight because he came back from it and he just didn't fucking know. Right. Yeah. There was no impact. There was no, like, it was a cool story, but it didn't matter to what was going on. Mm -hmm. They don't make the mistake here at the end. He comes away from this experience, not just scarred by the actual things he does, but also by the weight of the destiny that he is now aware of in a very like Pike way, like how season one of strange new worlds worked because a lot of the stories was about how Pike knew his fate. And like that, the consequences of him trying to dodge it ended up being significant, small and large as the season went on. And he came to peace with the fact he can't. In the same way, Archer is confronted with the weight of his destiny. And therefore, in season four, he goes the extra mile in all of the circumstances that he's that he knows he has to take now. And you know that he knows. And it makes finally makes him into the lead character of the show. Just almost too fucking late for it to matter. You know, it's not almost definitely, definitely too late. You have to do more. Like there's at least you get a good season of it, but this is where it starts. You're absolutely right. Like these, this sequ sequence that started when they arrived at the Zadi prime to the end is where like Jonathan Archer finally becomes a real boy. And you really like get what he's supposed to be. So we get to the Legion of doom council chambers, which turns out is on uh, in the ruins of an old uh, aviary. Uh, the, de the deceased Zindi race. Which again, I was expecting to see them actually come up and like still be alive. And I gotcha, bitch. But clearly the plot's not going that direction. Um, 
it's a neat setting. Again, it still feels very uh, prequel trilogy Star Wars-y. Like, there are such strong parallels between the Geonos and... Uh, what was it? The Confederation of whatever. Yeah. I, I, they're, they're borrowing heavily here, and it works, and it's cool. Uh, prior to this, as you said, the reptilians had confronted him and said that human ship doesn't come any closer, but like there's an armada with Enterprise escorting it. Like they put their guns on them, they even shoot a warning shot. So like they know they're going into some shit with the reptilians. And as Degra shows up with Archer in tow, like there is such good tension in that room. And again, it's a simple set piece, right? It looks like yeah. the same type of set piece that you could see in a Saturday Night Live skit. It's right, a nothing. simple set piece with actors and a lot of makeup and ridiculous costumes. And that's right? what I'm getting to, right? Like everything I said before, there is nothing. If you were to look at pictures of this, that says, wow, that looks impressive. Like you look at Game of Thrones or you look at Westworld or whatever. You're like, damn, man, this looks like serious business. Again, the fucking reptilians are there wearing these jelly purple uh, jumpsuits with bent clothes hanger shoulder pads like these guys look fucking ridiculous there's a sea world viewing window there <laughs> everything about the aquatics like the aquatics are cool because they're so alien mm-hmm. right but practically aquatics are ridiculous especially when they were using their fucking computers <laughs> their flippers <laughs> slap fight the keyboard uh, but him and Hoshi walking into this thing, and it's important that Hoshi's there because she's now demonstrating value and she is going to be on the uh, she's on the playing field for uh, future fuckery. But them walking in there, man, like you feel the tension, right? And I, I could feel for Degra too, like the uphill battle they're about to get in. I liked, by the way, the, the primary trait of each Zindi race is quite clear. The reptilians... They're the military leaders. The insectoids are the shock troops. The the arboreals are the middle managers because they're the ones that are like running the the plant and all of that for the explosive material. The primates are the scientists and the aquatics. They're rich. They're Bruce Wayne. (laughs) Like they bankrolled this whole thing. So and that's finally we find out what they added to the project. Oh, this they funded it. They found like. They had the contacts. They had merchant fleets. You can just kind of see it, like because they're happy, they're old, and they're you know get along well with was everybody that House else. Sordos from the old uh, Doom Westwood game. That yeah, was the, merchant. the green one. Yeah, <laughs> that's them. Um, I again, I'm I'm listening to our past episodes here. It doesn't come into play in this episode. But I was really wondering, like, is it going to come to light that Archer could have completely evaporated the arboreal um, production site and chose not to? Uh, the uh, Granted, it was done under chemical duress, but like the effort he put into saving the insectoid hatchery ship, like he's done some pretty extensive goodwill efforts and they have not. Uh, produced results in the negotiations so far. And I'm going to be very curious to see if at some point he's going to win over specifically the insectoids with uh, his, his book of good deeds. First session is a little testy. A fight breaks out. The one punches 
uh, Degra at one point. And they make the decision that they've got to come back with more evidence. The B plot continues. The the crew that's going to the sphere so they can get additional information from within it. Because Paul has figured out a way in, which is based on the information that they got from Degra, that there's this exhaust port that's being covered by a holographic field for some reason, as is noted in the plot. She doesn't tell anybody that that's what they're going for. So it looks like they're like going to make contact with the surface. But then, you know, they're inside. It's just needless drama for the sake of it. Don't, Listen, don't understand dude, it. She's recovering from a serious drug addiction. And <laughs> you got to cut her some fucking slack here. The, the, the real meat, though, is when we finally get to Degra and Tucker's first conversation which really picks up on the dramatic uh, weight that Trip has carried for a lot of this uh, oops, all bangers part of the show, uh, i.e. his hatred of Degra for being responsible for killing his sister as far as he sees it, and probably justifiably so. Because when he comes back, he asks for help in uh, making a modification to the ship that the Sphere Builder came in and working on some project that relates to something Flox is going to do and some technology they have. It's not quite clear right off the bat what they're going to do. Trip hates the idea, makes that very clear, and Dagra finally stands up to him, basically, to say, I cannot bring back your sister. I know you're not going to like me, but I am risking my life I am risking the lives of my children. I am risking the lives of my entire civilization. I have killed Zindi because I want our mission to succeed where both of our worlds survive. So I'm out on a fucking limb trip. Get off my ass. It's good. And Trip does not come back with a zinger uh, or anything quippy or anything to put him in his place. And you see the words land in, in, in parts of Trip where they can sink hooks in and start dragging him back off of this uh, very dark ledge where he's been living on. And jumping forward a little bit, he'll have conversations once it seems as though they've won and that diplomacy has had its way where he almost laments uh, losing access to that anger and that hatred. You know, he had been ready to go into the Delphic Expanse and launch war and find the bad guys and nuke them from orbit, uh, you know, and then have a beer while they spit on the ashes of the people that murdered him. So this is a very, this is not the solution that he was expecting, but Trip still at the end of the day is a Star Trek main cast member. He's bridge crew. The guy is still a good guy Mm -hmm. and recognizes a good thing and is able to move past these very dark feelings that he's been having. Uh, And it really starts here. So, again, just great scenes. Degra, again, has access to all the best scenes in the past couple episodes because he's getting to play with Trip. He's getting to play against uh, Archer. He's getting to play against the fucking the nasty uh, lizards. And again, the the council itself is composed of great actors who are able to hang on to these characters with both hands, despite ridiculous, cheap shit looking costumes. Uh, so, yeah, like Decker is really just the linchpin of why all this stuff works good. He's he's the, the common thread in all of these scenes. 
We saw him as J. Robert Arbenheimer just trying to like make the weapon because it's what a civilization needs. And now he's got proof. He's got evidence. And he's got all of these doubts uh, that are coming to, to the forefront. And, and again, he's going against their gods. Yeah. I've, I've disobeyed my gods is not the sentence he says, but he makes he makes it clear that that's what he's doing. And that's how important it is that he succeeds. And they're going to know, too, right? The stuff we saw in the beginning uh, before the credits was the sphere builders having a power uh, a, a conversation that we are deviating from the desired uh, timeline outcome. There's variables in place, specifically Enterprise, that are fucking with this. And some of them are like, yeah, this is within tolerance. And others are like, that's bullshit. Uh, these guys are fucking it up and we're going to have to take a real direct role in what's happening here. Um, and in one- speaking of that, that's when they show up to talk to Dolem. They're like, what if instead we uh, we start plan B and plan B is. But the, so they talked to Dolem before they talked to Degra. So, yeah, they talked to Dolem aboard his ship before they talked to Degra. Yes. Yes, they do. And the conversation basically goes along the line of let's make a deal. And the deal is uh, Archer fucking dies. That weapon launches. And maybe the Zindi is less about a council and more about reptilian uh, overlords. How you feel about that? Dolem definitely likes what he's hearing. Immediately buys in. Threatens to comically evil overlord murder his subordinate that dared question it for a moment. I want to talk about that. Because Dolem actually brings to the founder's attention like, um, can is there a way that we can like prove maybe that you guys are not doing all this heinous shit that Archer is accusing you of? Uh, you know, my my actually does he even finger his lieutenant and say like hey you know she snaps back at him and says like basically how dare you question us you know yeah, he the, doesn't actually address the the concern that the subordinate brings up and Dolan doesn't care I he, think he, he does you get great bio information from him from Degra which is he had his uh, grand, own grandchild poisoned. Uh, because he had a physical abnormality that displeased him. That's and that kind prevented of, him from being able to enter military service. Right. Like, that's the kind of man he is. Like the Reptilians are Cardassians. And, and it's a military fascist state of service as an identity. So uh, the fact, though, I think that Degro is willing to bring a subordinate's concern, bef- an accusatory concern before the found the, the Guardian... I think underlines a legitimate concern that he himself shares that like, what if Archer is right? And I think she is able, the guardian is able to successfully bully him while also uh, dangling this reptilian dominance in front of his face that whatever concerns he does have gets shoved back into a bottle and buried deep down. And then he takes it out on his lieutenant's ass and it's like, I will skin you and put you on the ship. (laughs) Well, you know, like he felt stupid or scared for having brought it up. And now he's snapping at him like, you know, basically, don't you ever uh, become a conduit for me to have my own doubts about this again? I'll cut your fucking balls off. You know, fuck you. 
you made me look like an asshole in front of the boss and like, you know, his lieutenant can be like, you, you didn't have to say that. Fuck you. This is your fault. It's not my fault. When but, they so there, there's more conversation between trip or there's more conversation between uh, Degra and Archer. You know, they make a real connection. They become something akin to friends over the course of this episode. They're starting to really understand, like, we have to build this relationship for Zindi and humans together. And it's the only way it's going to happen because we we're the only ones who've been through it enough and understand the stakes and have seen past the veil. You know, like the normal jabroni human and normal jabroni Zindi aren't going to understand that we've like experienced time travel and shit like we got to do this. And so their relationship works throughout the episode. And I think after that is when uh, Degra gets visited. So the sphere builder slash guardian pops and is like, I know what you're doing. You little dirty motherfucker. You are condemning your people to death. Uh, you are ruining everything, all the greatness that we have worked for, that your your, your races work for, and you are a race traitor, and uh, you are the Antichrist. And uh, what's what's the exact line he hits her with at the end? But she's like, "What have we done to dissuade the? Is it in there? I'm trying to find the line. I don't I don't see it as listed." Again, man, the fucking it's memory alpha yeah, the memory is so alpha bad. Is, it's such yeah. a banger line. But like, you know, what, what what do we do to to lose your faith? And he's like, or, you know, how how can we reestablish faith? And he's like, you never deserve my fucking faith in the first place. Like, I've seen past your lies. Uh, you guys are scumbags. You're fucking jerking us around. And any Zindi blood that's out there is on. He doesn't say all the sexual part, but it's it's a really good delivery on that. Yeah. It and, pays off what it said, which is that he is defying his gods. His god showed up to call him an asshole. And he said right back, like, no, you. <laughs> like, I'm on to you. So Degra at this point, he's doing that thing in like a scary, like a slasher movie where it's like he is completing who he is as a character. He is bridging the gap. He has a perceived victory here very soon. Where you're like, uh-oh, buddy. I don't... You just made don't a mess. Say it. Don't say it's two days before your retirement. <laughs> you you know, just like... made peace with the guy whose sister you space murdered. Like, don't don't do it, buddy. You're gonna... But on the flip side, like Degra has established himself as a natural leader. Uh, he has legitimate buy in. He has the best interest of his people and humanity like if he were to survive this episode, this is the guy that is going to be the president of the council that is there to shake the hand with uh, Starfleet and, and be part of the ground level on the United Federation of planets. So it's like real 50, 50 on what's going to happen here. Next meeting they have with the council, they present a hologram version of the sphere builder that they had captured in previously in tapestry or not tapestry, um, whatever that was. And Harbinger Harbinger. I don't know why I said tapestry. And there's a pretty good technobabble explanation of like, no, like Archer's scientific ability is insufficient to copy this. We took the data they had and we reconstructed it using our like surgery, you know, training holograms 
there's it's well navigated for how techno babbly it is and kind of like conveys like this actually was as not possible for the humans to to do they couldn't have done this on accident but look who it is <laughs> and it i like you it kind of head fakes you because you expect like this might be where the aquatics it's been built up like this is what the aquatics want to see they want to see evidence because they were convinced by uh stuff from the future that the sphere builders brought that showed the dark fate of zindus and in this case it's actually suddenly dolem was like i want to hear more Let's hold off the launch of the weapon. This is clearly very interesting information. And that's when you get the two days from retirement scene, which is, well, they go back and it looks like they're, they've succeeded. Like you said, I still want to credit the script here too, because to Manny Cotto's writing ability, he had just had the scene with the uh, reptilians being approached directly by the guardian saying, you know, you, you, take the leadership initiative here. You start getting stabby and we're going to put you as the the head. That interplay between him and his lieutenant, him expressing doubt to the guardian's face, looking for additional evidence, very compelling evidence being presented here and him saying, uh, you know, let's stay this off. I want to see more like, again, I'm 50, 50 on, is this a lie or are we react? You know, is the script going to try and like fake us out that, Hey, maybe the reptilians aren't the super bad guys after all. And it is going to be the insectoids that are going to be the real motherfuckers, or maybe even the aquatics will turn out to be like the big bads by the end, but Nope. <laughs> we, we, we will briefly catch up with our B plot, which is our away team who is collecting the MacGuffin off the sphere successfully. Mayweather is in the shuttle. He's like monitoring the situation, giving him like calling out like the sit rep of like what's going on on sensors. And sure enough, some deadly robot arms have been deployed to try some and real, stop some real Johnny quest shit. <laughs> yeah. Some <laughs> robot spiders come, come to stop them. And poor Corporal Hawkins with his shields down due to his not his bad acting, having been somewhat alleviated. Uh, decides to climb up towards it to shoot at it better, I guess. And, and he's then like, gets... hold on, I can't see. There's something on my visor. And he brings up a rag to clean off his faceplate. And as he draws the rag back, he sees that he's holding a uh, original series red shirt. And he's like, what is this? And suddenly, <laughs> the robotic claw snatches him up, starts crushing him, Reed who has uh, taken some classes of his own and now knows how to hold a gun, starts shooting at this thing. And not only does it crush him, it like has a little special disintegration laser and just boop. Yeah, just gone. He's gone. He is dust. He, he is more dead than any of the other dudes who have died on Enterprise this season, which, as we will note, was a lot. <laughs> and they try to shoot their way free, but it is We in haven't fact had a death this decisive and final since uh, Jerry Taylor killed Lon Suter and Seska. Eventually smooth, charming, all smiles as always. Travis Mayweather rolls in with the vet, blows them up with the, sh- with the shuttle phasers. And it's like, move, get in the ship. Let's go. Spiders are trying to kill you guys. Let's go. Let's get the fuck out of here. Practical as always, Travis. Thank you. Very lucky that uh, they brought that third guy that wasn't Major Hayes or anybody else that they cared about for the the way team. 
That was some real red shirt shit right there. It was the most red shirt moment I think we've we've ever seen. Where it's like this guy got brought just to die. Like not yeah. since Joe Carey died in Friendship 1 has someone been more destined for this end. So back on the ship, we have first uh, Degra's scene kind of finishing things with Trip. Where... He goes to the engine room. He tells Archer, we've made progress. They've delayed the launch. Diplomacy's working. Let's do this. Seems like we're getting to hit the good ending. We're going to get the Paragon ending. The dialogue options have succeeded. And Trip, you know, he he actually makes peace with Degra. He, like, asks to talk to him. And he he acknowledges, like, you've, you're trying to save everyone's lives. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you I know that, right? They don't, like, hug they don't become best friends, but very importantly for the journey Degra has been on is that Tri- Trip acknowledges that Degra has done the necessary work to earn a measure of forgiveness for his actions. There's neat symbology in play, too, because uh, one episode or two episodes ago, uh, Degra, I think it was two episodes ago, Degra had left them with power cells Yeah, because uh, Enterprise was so fucked up and to Paul brings it over and is like, Hey, let's get these installed. And he's like, I don't want Degra's help. Fuck that guy. He's a piece of shit. And in that scene where he's mending the bridge, he's like, Hey man, actually uh, we're having some problems adapting these power cells over that gift you gave us. Uh, I would like to acknowledge it and actually ask for your help in getting those installed. And Degra's like, yeah, we can do that. Big mistake on Degra's end. Yeah, you don't want to resolve things with your biggest enemy because that means your plot armor is gone. Yeah. So Uh, back down on the ruins of the aviary, uh, the avians. uh, It's cool because it's like this Shangri-La. Yeah, it's real like Tibetan feeling like up in the clouds. He's in a room he's using as like a, a workspace. And uh, in walks the reptilian and uh, is like, uh, you know, wasn't expecting you. And then the reptilian's like this place. I hate it. It's uh, too exposed. You know, we like keeping uh, ourselves down low to the earth and covered. And also it stinks of failure and like inferior species. And uh, Degra's having a hard time putting two and two together that his life's in danger comes over and says, uh, I know about the ship. I know about your treason shoot firing on us. And uh, you're about to pay for it. I, in you and I, in our prior life, we had many opportunities to stunt on, on the dead. I don't know how else to put it. We, we got to talk trash to people in a simulated environment where you were, you were thrown up. You, you were, you were, you were putting them out. You were putting them down. You were winning the game. They weren't getting to play anymore. And that meant we had the opportunity to master rubbing it in, master <laughs> dunking, master teabagging, uh, finding the right way for the right person. But I got to say, game, respect game. Dolan stabs Degra. 
kills him dead. And as he's still alive with the light is starting to vanish from his eyes, he pulls the knife out of him, shows him the, the bloody knife that he's just killed him with and promises to find his wife and children because his traitorous bloodline will end the same way. Like as you're dying, I just want to make sure, you know, I'm going to find your family and I'm going to murder all of them with this knife. The same way I murdered you. Goodbye. Like that's, that's putting the dab on him. That's solid. That's good. Evil work right there. That's, that's the most brutal death that you could ever dial up in Star Trek right there. Yeah. He just basically wrote a blank check. Uh, for Archer or someone else, probably Trip. I, I, I foresee uh, Dolem dying by Trip's hand because of the like buddy system thing. But I, I would say for what he has done to Degra there, he has earned himself a uh, transporter trip out into space. <laughs> Maybe he's he's there to fuck this guy death is what would you say? Yeah, like he he might have to get beamed into a bulkhead or some other. <laughs> I don't think he's going to get off easy with the photon torpedo to his ship. Like, uh, you don't stab the. That's crazy for me to say that, like, Jeffrey Combs might not be the best guest actor for this <laughs> season. Uh, I don't know. He might get kicked in the lava, but the lava is not deep enough to, like, fully submerge him. So he just slowly disintegrates into, like, two inches of lava. I don't know. Uh, poor Degra, though. And I'm sad to see him go. It was a great character to have around. I think that there could have been some really cool ways to have him be the liaison as a doubtful Zindi has to mend uh, bridges with Earth and join into a federation. But uh, this is also real compelling stuff as to advance the plot of season three. And uh, they don't hide what they've done. Uh, Archer gets a call from Degra's co-primate or whatever. The, I can't remember what that guy's name is. He, he, funny story. Uh, that character never received a name on screen. So the actor Tucker Smallwood gave the character a name and just named it Deepak after Deepak Chopra. So, Deepak. yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah. So he's Deepak. I'm going to go on that. Deepak. Deepak's like, uh... <laughs> Yeah, he's got t- tears in his eyes. He's clearly broken up. It's like, yeah, uh, Dagger's dead. Found him an hour ago. Stabbed. Clearly very murdered. We're in some shit now. Some bad shit's about to happen. We all know it. Get ready. Yeah, whatever's whatever's about to go down is going to be violent, obviously. Whatever Enterprise does not have in terms of Game of Thrones scale set pieces They've gotten fucking Game of Thrones political tension and dread, right? And there's another thing, you know, I've been there for negotiations and like games and this and that. And it's like something goes off the rails and you're like, things are going wrong. People are cheating and breaking the rules. And now that I see that there is no civility involved in this, like this is going to be real fucking ugly and real bad for us. And I don't know if we're going to be able to beat back the cheaters. So Archer goes to trip and says, where like as soon as he gets off the phone, right? Yeah. He's like, all right, uh, tactical alert. I'm going to go put a shirt on. Shout out real quick. It's I think it's been a while since we've had a shirtless cast member. 
It's true. It has been a second. We've had some restraint, and the shirtless cast member in this case was Scott Bakula, who's the the most like you know medium of the shirtless hunks. Yeah. Still compared to us, I mean, he's Scott Jackula. So, oh, of course, absolutely, man's a fucking god compared to us. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but everybody had kind of had this nice little breather of, Hey, you know, we're at the end of the rainbow. Look at all this big pot of gold. And it's like, Nope. Turns out it's a big steaming vat of shit. And you guys are deep in it. So Dolan tries to claim praxis of the weapon and he has the insectoids in his pocket. He, apparently the fail safe on launching the weapon is that, or firing the weapon rather is you need three codes from three different Zindi species. So that kind of prevents this circumstance from happening. There's a fail safe built in. Uh, But Dolan claims, you know, I've got a workaround. Don't you worry. And despite the the council. Yeah. And just, you know, now it's, it's clear warm bloods versus cold bloods, right? Like we're here, we're doing it. uh, And, he, they hijack the weapon and try and run away with it. So the episode ends with the Death Star flying out of uh, a secret, a comically large trapdoor. Like <laughs> the planet surface, like opens in these big Doctor Evil style uh, blast doors. Death Star flies out, and you got the uh, good guys flying after this with uh, Deepak. In the lead, along with Enterprise, firing at this thing, Deepak's like, listen, here's the weak points. You got to target them. We got to bring this thing down. Uh, And the reptilians having just about enough of the humans meddling and saying, ignore all the other ships, focus fire on Enterprise. We're getting rid of this motherfucker, Jonathan Archer, once and for all. Two things. One, baller space fight. Uh, Sound design in this episode is great. Definitely, uh, particularly in this scene, um, the way that like Enterprise is just hammering it with torpedoes in desperation. You see the Zindi ships basically fighting with each other. And there's like they're taking casualties too. like you see some of the Zindi ships go down like there's six insectoid ships guarding the weapon. And at the end, there's only three. So this has already turned into a brother's war on the jump. And they really spent the time to try and make this look like a big kinetic fight with a lot of shit happening. And the background has got a lot of shit happening in it too, uh, which is cool for the time frame. I always like to, to point that out. And the other big trump card that the reptilians play is they snatch up Hoshi. Uh, they just beam her right off the ship. So clearly the indication is I don't have a third code. So I'll go ahead and steal a code breaker and is that what the the angle is there? Oh, yeah. Guaranteed. Um, you know, just get the most talented cipher person because that's what lang- decoding a language is, is basically decoding a, a complex puzzle uh, to code break into finding the third password. I did like also like Hoshi very well used in this episode. Once again, like being flirty with Jonathan Archer on the planet talking about girls always liking the bad boys. <laughs> But it fits. It does fit. It's also a good reminder, like polarizing your hull is not shielding your vessel and transporters make great offensive, which we just saw when it was Enterprise versus Enterprise and uh, Archer starts stealing shit out of uh, whatever uh, E2 kids, which they don't 
talk about that at all. And I actually, you know, <laughs> forgot they even existed there for a minute. Uh, but Hoshi's gone. Enterprise is getting its ass beat. The Death Star is on the prowl. I don't know, man. Now's a good time for Shran to finally show up and uh, start lending a hand here or something because things are looking real bad for Enterprise. Just you wait. And we're going to be waiting for Countdown Season 3, Episode 23. With the help from some Zindi factions, the Enterprise crew attempts to stop the arming of the Zindi weapon. There it is. Look at this. This is going to be uh, Andre Baramis, written by Chris Black. We're busting out Robert Duncan McNeil. This is a big one for him, huh? Oh, I mean, it's uh, it's all coming together. Uh, This and then going into the finale, Zeno Zero Hour. It's just it's excellent. I want to see what this next one looks like from a directorial standpoint. Uh, For everything that we just said about how good that episode was, David Livingston, again, who his style is is non-existent, right? There's no fingerprint to the way that David Livingston does anything other than uh, the complete absence of anything fancy. And he he had one that was actually like a real wow factor. What what was it that Livingston had? We're like, damn, he must be trying to get laid. Like, why is he? (laughs) One of our fans, I'm sure will remind us which it is. This one is also very flat. Very normal. Everything is just in camera. Like the one above the headshot they do is in the Zindi council room, which they've done that camera angle multiple times there. So it's probably just like in when you're in this room, go high. It's just the thing they do. And aside from that, steady hand though, right? Like you had a good script. You've got good actors. Yeah, they're just your dudes are in frame. They're doing their job. That's sometimes all you're there to make sure you do is capture them doing We've, their job. But I'm saying like this thing's hitting on all cylinders right now. Robert Duncan McNeil has been able to go into episodes and pour like high octane into the, the, the actors to really get some oomph out of them. I'm curious if we are going to see in a, any sort of like marked increase or improvement in any aspect. And I'm not shitting on David Livingston, right? No, yeah, no, what you mean? Like we've noticed this in in Robbie before, so we won't be but interested Livingston to see if he does it again. Establishes a high baseline of like I am not obtrusive with my directorial style, and and like I guess his style is just efficiency to the point where read overclocking the phaser had to be added to that one episode because he completed the script and still had like five minutes to kill or something. <laughs> um. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this next one. And we are looking forward to all of you joining us for the next one as we, we continue through the all bangers phase. So we'll see you next week. Thanks. Oh, and like, like, share, subscribe, review us on stuff. I'm bad at promoting us, <laughs> but <laughs> we actually do appreciate that a whole bunch of people listen lately. So thank you to all of you. <laughs>